Take now your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 19, today reading verses 1 through 12, Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. Uh, We are continuing and almost finished with our topical study this summer through marriage and sexuality as we find it in the scriptures. Next week, Lord willing, uh, we will have our last sermon looking at the marriage supper of the Lamb from the book of Revelation. Uh, But today, dealing with the issue of divorce from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Uh, I mentioned to one of your elders this morning that I was preaching on divorce, and with his tongue thoroughly in his cheek, he said, hold on, let me get my wife, she needs to hear this. Uh, Again, tongue thoroughly in cheek. Uh, But uh, I hope that wherever we are today on this issue, I hope we realize that this is not a text that somebody else needs to hear. Uh, This is God's word for each of us. Uh, And as difficult as a subject as it may be for some of us, uh, this is God's good word for us as well. Uh, Just a a note that we're going to read verses 1 through 12. We're not going to deal very much at all with verses 10 through 12. Uh, It's part of the context. It's part of the larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. You need to see that it's there. Uh, But we're not going to deal with it much beyond uh, mentioning it and mentioning to you now that in those verses, Jesus essentially agrees with those uh, words that we heard from Paul last week. He lays down such a heavy burden and uh, in in a good sense, a heavy burden and a high view of marriage uh, that his disciples are intimidated. They say, maybe if that's what it's like, it's better not to be married at all. And Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, no, 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 you're wrong. He says, well, actually... For some, that's true. He says singleness is an option for the Christian life. It's a legitimate way to live as a believer. Jesus agrees with them. He says not for everyone. Uh, Not everyone can accept it, but he says those who can, let them accept it. So we won't say more beyond that today. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 12. And again, focus mostly today on verses 1 through 9. Before we read this text, let's go to the Lord together in a word of prayer and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your living word. We thank you also for your living spirit whom you have given into the hearts of your people to cause us not only to believe in our Savior, but to walk like him and with him. Father, help us to do that today. Help us to receive your implanted word with meekness and to hear your instruction for us, for our marriages, and for divorce. Father, help us as we read and study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it, Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one, 
to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study this word together today. Well, if we, uh, we talk about marriage long enough, eventually we have to talk about divorce. Uh, somewhat ironically, perhaps, since the fall in the garden, those two issues are inseparable. Uh, James Boyce puts it this way. He says, marriage is the most intimate of all relationships, and it is in marriage that the most piercing pain can be experienced. Indeed. There is, perhaps, we might say, no love quite like the love of someone who is pledged to you, for better or for worse, till death do you part. No commitment uh, that can be experienced, no joy in fellowship with another person so deep as that. But precisely because those things are true, there is no betrayal quite like the one that comes from the person who is supposed to be your covenant companion for life. Boy says, the most intimate of relationships, but also, at times, the most piercing pain. Tucked inside of that statement, I think, is a, is a reality that in this life, our marriages don't go the way that they should. There's a simple reason for that. Husbands and wives are sinners joined to sinners. And in our sin, we, we may find, if we're uh, viewing ourselves correctly that we actually have ever-surprising capacities for selfishness, for pride, for calculating, manipulating, and making our marriages into things that they were never intended to be. Even when our marriages go the distance, that sin lays hold on all of us at some level. So if you're here today and, and you're not divorced, have never been divorced, you probably know someone who is. Perhaps you're the child, as I am, of a, of a divorced family. Uh, maybe you have a son uh, or a, a daughter. Uh, maybe you have a very close friend or a sister going through a divorce right now. Maybe someone has come to you in confidence asking your, your advice on what to do with a marriage that feels like a prison sentence. Maybe you're the one who's gone to someone else in confidence and asked that same question. If we're going to study what the Bible says about marriage, we also need to know what it says about divorce. Jesus says there are two factors we need to take into consideration on this. The first is God's intention. The second is sin's complication. Those are two points, or two headings today. God's intention and sin's complication. We begin with God's intention for marriage. In our passage, Jesus is confronted with the question of divorce. It comes to him from others. It comes from these Pharisees who we are told are really just trying to trap him. Verse 3, it says they came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife 
around. He calls. We see this all throughout the Gospels. Religious leaders treating Jesus like someone that they can uh, simply malign by getting him to say the wrong thing. Someone who can be taken in, baited into, uh, into saying something that will get himself in trouble. So they bring up inflammatory issues in public settings, hoping that Jesus is going to get himself into trouble. Now, modern commentators will be quick to point out that in Jesus' day, this issue of divorce, the question of what was allowed, was a theological hot topic. It was a very live debate going back and forth uh, over be, uh, between the liberal scholars and the conservative Jewish scholars concerning the place of divorce in the Mosaic Law. And the, the debate hinged on a single phrase from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Later, verse 7, the Pharisees will essentially quote that passage. But Deuteronomy 24 is the only place in the Old Testament where the Old Testament law deals with how divorce proceedings should be dealt with. It says there this. It says, when a man takes a wife and he marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and the passage continues. But the phrase in question, the one that they zeroed in on in their debate, is this question of some indecency. If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And the rabbis debated what that phrase meant. The conservative scholars, on one side, said that it was restricted only to the issue of sexual scandal. Something like what we read of in Matthew chapter 1, where uh, Joseph thought that a sin had been committed by Mary before they uh, were brought together, before the angel appeared to set the story straight. And so that's the conservative scholars on one side. The liberal scholars on the other side uh, suggested that this phrase, some indecency, could mean just about anything you wanted it to mean. And so a rabbi by the name of Hillel famously taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason he wanted, something as simple as the fact that he didn't like the way that she cooked his meals. Or perhaps if he uh, desired a prettier wife than the one that he had, that could be considered something indecent in her, and he could put her away. This understands, this helps us to understand, rather, why the Pharisees asked the question of divorce in the way that they asked it here in Matthew. They say, is it lawful to, to divorce one's wife for any cause? In other words, they want to know where Jesus draws the line. Which side does he come down on? Does he agree with the liberals? Does he agree with the conservatives? Does Jesus allow divorce for almost anything or for practically nothing? That was the debate among the rabbis, you understand. I probably don't have to tell you which side was more popular among the common people especially among the men. The more popular idea in the day was the same as the more popular idea today, the one that makes marriage easy to get out of. In 1969, California became the first state in our country to recognize what is known as a no-fault divorce. Before the no-fault system, divorce was often a long and adversarial process through the family courts. That's because in order to obtain a divorce, one spouse had to charge the other with having done something to cause the breakdown of the marriage. And those charges could be, uh, they could be contested. 
They could be argued. They could be defended. That process could be drawn out through the court system. Today, a no-fault system is the law of the land. In all 50 states, a single spouse can file for divorce without having to claim or to prove some specific reason for the separation. Our own Commonwealth of Massachusetts defines a no-fault divorce as they say it is a divorce where the marriage is broken beyond repair, but neither spouse blames the other. That sounds amicable, doesn't it? It sounds almost enjoyable. Nothing went wrong. Nobody's to blame. There, there wasn't a fault on anyone's part, but, you know, it's, it's just not working anymore. We realized that we had, and this is the legal jargon, irreconcilable differences. We could no longer be together, you see, but nobody's at fault. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees knew which side of the debate carried the popular opinion. So here, in the presence of of what Matthew calls these very large crowds that followed him, in a public setting, they're inviting Jesus to put his foot in his mouth. What do you say, Jesus? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus' answer comes in the form of rebuke. Verse 4, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He's not dodging their question. He knows that they've read it. And he knows that they know that he knows that they've read it. He's not dodging their question. He's answering it in the proper order. The question of divorce is what to do with a marriage that seems like it's not working. And before you can ask the question of what is allowed in a divorce, you need to understand what is meant in a marriage in the first place. So Jesus is pointing back to God's intention. Jesus quotes Genesis. He traces it all the way back to the garden, chapters 1 and 2, back before sin opened the door for family courts and divorce lawyers and separation agreements. He takes it all the way back to the beginning. There are two core truths about marriage that Jesus is teaching here in in these verses. The first one is that marriage is God's gift to us to be an expression of our nature. Remember back to our study in Genesis chapter 2. We've already looked at this together if you're visiting with us. But remember, those of you who heard, remember how God's gift of marriage is inseparable from how he made humanity. God made man first. He made male first. Then he declared that it was not good for him to be alone. Not good. We would call it bad, perhaps. Bad for him to be alone. Not because man was wrong, but because man was incomplete. So on the same day that God made man, God also made marriage. He made them not only male, but male and female. He made the first woman, then he brought her to the man, and God himself created the first family. And then the Lord declared a rule for all time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It means that we need to begin with the acknowledgement that marriage is good. Marriage is for our good. Marriage is not an invention that we dreamed up for ourselves. It is an institution from God. 
It's given to us to express how we have been made and what we need as human beings in the first place. It means that husbands ought not to view their wives as accessories to be added or subtracted as they desire. It seems to be the issue going on among the Pharisees of the day. It means that wives should not view their husbands as an inconvenience that they might be better off without. Have you heard anybody say those sorts of things about marriage and divorce? They say things like, you know, we finally saw that, that we could never be happy if we were still together. And so we chose happiness over marriage. We chose fulfillment over commitment. They say things like, we both decided that this marriage, it wasn't working for us anymore. Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He said, therefore, because they have been made this way, because they have been made for one another, God would join them together. It's an expression of our nature. As a side note here, this means that we are not free to redefine marriage however we please. You'll often hear it claimed by proponents of the new sexual morality that Jesus, you know, never had anything to say about LGBTQ. That's not true. Jesus upheld the teaching that runs through the Bible from beginning to end. He defended the fact that the only legitimate context for the sexual union of two people is the covenantal bond of heterosexual marriage, period. Anything else is a perversion of God's purpose. And Christians cannot endorse or celebrate any alternative arrangement. Because marriage is an expression of our nature. Secondly, God made marriage to be an absolute bond between two people. Not just something on the surface, but a complete joining of two lives into one life. Utterly inseparable. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother, then hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, Christ concludes, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus says that God himself has joined them together. It means that in a marriage, God creates a new fundamental unity between two people. They are bound together. The word translated joined in our passage actually means to be yoked. Like two oxen stuck together. Maybe not the metaphor you would have come up with, but it it speaks to what marriage is like, right? Two people going through life carrying the same load, sharing the same burden, pushing for the same goal. It's true that this this, uh, one flesh relationship is founded on the sexual union that exists between a husband and a wife, but we can't reduce it down to just that one factor. It's much more than that. This is the argument, by the way, that we find in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. There the prophet says that a man's wife is his companion by covenant. Not anymore, we don't even talk about husbands and wives, do we? We talk about partners. Like you're in a business venture. 
Malachi doesn't say your, your wife is your partner. He doesn't say she's just your friend or your lover or just your roommate. He says she is your covenant companion. And wives, your husband is the same for you. Your companion by covenant. And your lives are tied together and ought to be tied together in every aspect imaginable. And it means union in a marriage in all of those simple little tangible things. Things like shared bank accounts, right? Your tax returns at the end of the year. Filing married and jointly. It also has to do with some intangibles as well. Things like how you relate to your extended family. Things like how you spend your personal time, your me time. It means things about like what you want for your future or where you worship on Sundays or how you discipline the children God has blessed you with. The Lord intended marriage to be a complete bond between two people, a marriage and a bond so deep and so permanent that it would be utterly pervasive. There's no area left behind just for yourself. That there's no sanctuary for secrets to grow between the two of you. No place where affections can ripen for somebody else outside of your marriage relationship. John Calvin wrote that whoever divorces his wife tears himself in pieces. And it is supposed to feel exactly like that. This is perhaps one of the approaches that is most at odds with the Bible's teaching on marriage and divorce in our own day. If you look only at one side of the statistics, it might look like uh, things are getting better concerning divorce. The divorce rate, per capita divorce rate in America, is at the lowest point it's been in nearly 30 years. Our divorce rate today is lower than it was in the mid-1940s. And some people would look at that and say, what a wonderful thing, fewer divorces. But the other number that is steadily trending down with that is the number of marriages. That figure has been in decline since the 70s. The number that is going up is a number of unmarried couples cohabiting together. What it means is that our culture is in the process of trading what used to be a low view of marriage for what is becoming no view of marriage. A view of marriage that essentially agrees with the disciples' statement in verse 10, perhaps with a twinge of cynicism. They said, if marriage is that permanent, if it's that hard to get out of, who would want to get wrapped up in it in the first place? If such is the case of a man with his wife, it might be better not to marry. And our modern culture has agreed with that statement. They haven't agreed in the way that the disciples meant it, but they've agreed with it nonetheless. The disciples heard about marriage and divorce, and they said, well, it might be better to stay single. Our culture says it might just be better to shack up. It might just be better to... Uh, to, to share a bed together without sharing a future. The disciples meant that it maybe it's better to avoid relationships altogether. And in our culture, we say it's better to keep them where we can control them. It's better to pursue commitment on our own terms, to make it something that's comfortable to get into, and by the way, comfortable to get out of. And so instead of filing for marriage licenses, more and more couples, and this is not happening just among 20-somethings, mind you, more and more couples, instead of filing for marriage license, they're just 
signing a lease agreement together. They're simply moving the external trappings of their lives to the same location. They're simply trying on something that feels a little bit like marriage, but at the end gives you the option of getting your security deposit if it doesn't work out in 12 months. And if we want to talk about the erosion of family values in America, this is it. It's not just about the stuff that you see on the headlines. It's not just about who gets to read books to the kids at the local library. It comes down to the view that says, you know, marriage is optional. Marriage is unimportant. I can do without it if I don't want it. Marriage is fine if that's what you're into. But, you know, we've got this good thing over here, and we don't need some piece of paper to mess it up. Not so, says the Savior. Marriage is not an optional institution we can live without. It's not meant to be temporary. That's because marriage is God's intention for humanity. It's why he made us the way that he did. It's why he made sexual relationships and family connections deep enough that it can hold even sinners together for the long haul. Because that's God's purpose for marriage. He made it to be uh, something that lasts a lifetime. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to deal with the question of divorce, the Bible's very first answer is, don't. Don't do it. That's what he says. Verse 6, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the only command in the whole passage. It is an intentionally broad statement. It is a clear and direct no. Are you considering divorce? Don't. Do you wonder if maybe the exception clause applies to you? Begin by assuming that it doesn't. Be willing to doubt all those justifications you have for wanting to be out of the marriage you're in. Begin by listening to and starting to believe the other people in your life who are telling you, you know, this really isn't going to make anything simpler. Not for you, not for your kids, not for your future, not for your faith. Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. I know. I know that when we talk about divorce, things get very personal very quickly. I know that by pressing into verse 6 there, I'm probably stepping on a few toes even this, in this church today. I also know that in just a moment, Jesus is going to say that there are times when divorce is permitted. And then Paul's going to say roughly the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know as well as you know that Matthew chapter 19 verse 6 is not the Bible's last word on divorce. But Jesus is showing us that if this is a live question for you, this ought to be where you start. This ought to be the first place you go. Because until we understand what God intended in the first place, we can't possibly understand what's allowed under some circumstances. So Jesus says, don't. God's intention is for our marriages to last a lifetime. Secondly, we need to see sin's complication in this passage. Sin's complication. Now, perhaps the Pharisees were prepared uh, for Jesus to take the maximalist approach on marriage. Maybe they were just frustrated that he didn't 
uh, fall into the trap they had set for him. So they respond by quoting that text from Deuteronomy that Jesus has tactfully avoided in his first response to them. But why then, they say, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And it's true, by the way. Right? In, in Deuteronomy, it deals with how divorces ought to be handled. And it talks about uh, writing a certificate of divorce and sending away, and it gives us some of the, the procedure that ought to be followed. But I hope you notice the way that the scriptures are subtly being twisted by these Pharisees to suit their own agenda. Because the same thing happens today. There's some people who seem to think that anything that the Bible mentions, the Bible necessarily condones. Right? You, you know that this happens in other areas. So somebody will point to that verse in the New Testament where Paul says that in the Roman world, slaves ought to obey their masters. And they say, see, you can't trust the Bible because the Bible is pro-slavery. Somebody else says, you know, Abraham, he had a lot of wives. That means the Bible is, uh, is pro-polygamy. Several years ago, I had a man walk into my office and try to convince me that it's a good thing, it's okay for Christians to go to mediums, to seek out fortune tellers and palm readers and tarot card readers. Why? What was his biblical justification? He said, well, in Genesis, it tells us that that silver cup that Joseph snuck into the grain bag for his brothers, that he used it for divination. You can play that game with any number of issues if you are determined enough. If you come to the scripture with your own idea of what it probably teaches or what you want it to teach, you can probably find one single proof text somewhere that will conform to the ideas you already have if you look hard enough. It seems to be what the Pharisees were doing. If we judge by their presentation of the passage, you would think that Deuteronomy 24 says something like this. If you are unsatisfied with your wife because of something undecent, then you shall divorce her. You must get rid of her. If there's anything you don't like, the only option is to put her away. But that's not what Deuteronomy 24 says. Let's turn there. Let's look at that passage together so we can see the whole for ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Because actually the command doesn't come until near the end. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you an inheritance. There is a command in that passage. But the command is not, thou shalt divorce your wives. The command is, you may not remarry your ex-wife if she has been married to somebody else in the meantime. I hope you see and understand the reason for that commandment. God is protecting the women 
in this situation. He is writing to the men who hold power and status in Israel, and he's warning them not to enter into some sort of uh, abusive cycle of wife-swapping and serial divorce and remarriage. He's telling them they may not treat their wives like possessions, things to be uh, collected and then traded and passed off to the next guy whenever they're finished, because you can always come back, can't you? And actually, the passage was almost opposite from the way that the Pharisees are trying to frame it. If anything, this is a restriction on divorce, not a license. So even with that passage, God is telling his people, this is not the sort of thing that you can take lightly. Back to Matthew. So you notice that Jesus flips the vocabulary of these Pharisees. They said, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Hold on a second. Verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I hope you see the point that Jesus is making. He's showing us that when God gives us instructions in the Bible concerning divorce, those instructions are a concession They are, at best, an allowance. They're not a commandment. They are an adjustment in real time because of what our sin has made of our relationships. They're a pivot necessitated by our sin and the divisions that we have between one another. They are, in every instance, an open acknowledgement of our rebellion against God and, subsequently, our divisions against one another. Let me put it this way. God gave marriage to humanity. You can read about it in those first chapters. You can see how God made marriage pure and clean. He had a purpose. God gave humanity the gift of marriage. But divorce, that's our idea. It didn't come from him. It was not an institution that he came up with, that he gave to us. There's no passage in in the Old Testament where you can find the first divorce proceeding. You can't reach back into the the pages of primeval history and find the first place that God says, all right, now you two, you need to go to different corners. Who knows where it came from? Who knows who started it? All we know is that it's part of the human reality that grew up with us and with our sin. That's where divorce comes from. It comes from us. It comes as a product of that same sin that Titus chapter 3 says, apart from Christ, leaves us all passing our days in malice and envy. It leaves us hated by others and hating one another. And that sort of thing creeps even into the most intimate relationships of our lives. And it means that there is no divorce, there never has been a divorce that is not wrapped up with dealing with the disaster that our sin has made out of marriage. We have to be very careful in how we say that. There are some churches that might want to put it more plainly. I want to make it a little more black and white. There are some churches where they want to tell you that all divorce is sinful, period. That's not a biblical statement. That's not true. Matthew chapter 1 says that because Joseph was a righteous man he decided to put Mary away quietly. The implication is that that's what he ought to have done if she had committed the sin that he thought she committed in the first place. There was a righteous response. 
Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord says that he has served Israel with a certificate of divorce. God himself is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24 in Isaiah chapter 50. He has served his bride with a certificate of divorce, not because God has sinned against her, but because she has sinned against him. So it's not accurate to say that all divorce is necessarily sinful. What we can say is that all divorce is always the result of sin. Divorce is either brought about by a sin that makes divorce a legitimate option, or if there is no sin behind it, the divorce itself is an act of unrighteousness. It means that in the eyes of the Lord, there is no such thing as a no-fault divorce. But here's the complication. Sometimes, God allows divorce as a way to help contain the disaster that sin has made out of our marriages. If anything, that ought to help us see how terrible our sin is. Some of you in this room have been through divorce, and you know what it's like. Especially if there are children involved, or there were children involved, you know it can be catastrophic. You know that Calvin was right in his, uh, his description of what it feels like. And yet there are sins that people commit against one another that can be worse than the pain and the suffering that divorce involves. And the God of the Bible acknowledges that. In the New Testament, there are exactly two situations for a Christian when a divorce is allowable. Only two. In verse 9 here, Jesus says that divorce is allowed, not required, but allowed. Divorce is allowed in the case of sexual immorality. That is, when some sexual sin has broken the covenant of marriage that was already in place. The obvious example is outright adultery, but there's a chance that we can include other things under that umbrella term of sexual immorality. The second situation, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says a divorce is allowed when a believer has been deserted by an unbeliever who refuses to remain with them in marriage. Sexual sin and desertion. Those are the only two scenarios that the New Testament envisions a divorce being allowed among God's people. As a side note, again, I believe, and, and many Reformed pastors uh, believe, that a solid theological case can be made for allowance of divorce in cases of physical abuse. In that situation, that would be a subset of this uh, idea of desertion, because by continued unrepentant abuse, the abuser proves themselves to be not a believer, not willing to live in peace with the one they have been bound to. There's a theological case that can be made, and many Reformed pastors would follow that same line of thinking. Nevertheless, explicitly in Scripture, there are only two reasons the Scripture gives us for allowing divorce, immorality and desertion. But since that is so, it ought to make every husband and wife here in this room fearful of the effects of the sins that we are capable of committing against one another. There are cases, Jesus is telling us, where the continued betrayal of your husband's or your wife's unfaithfulness is simply more than your marriage can bear. There are cases when a believer can be so harmed by the desertion of their unbelieving spouse that the best option is simply to allow them to depart and go on without them. 
There are sins that we can commit against one another that are more painful than what Calvin called tearing yourself in pieces. And if we know our own hearts, it ought to make us fearful of those sins that we're capable of if the Lord would not restrain us. It's sin's complication concerning marriage. Now, we've, we've dealt with some weighty issues uh, in this passage, a few technical details. I want to end with a few words of direct application uh, as we close. The first word is that some of you need to know that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Again, in some churches, divorce seems like a dirty word. And if we're charitable, we can understand where that comes from. There, there's an impulse behind that reaction that divorce itself, by being a divorce, no matter how it came about, no matter uh, what it was dealing with, that divorce is always sinful. There's an idea there. And, and there is a sense in which uh, divorce is a visible manifestation of the divisions by our sin. And Jesus tells us not to pursue divorce. However, in the church of Christ, as new creations in him, our standing is not determined by how well our marriages worked out or didn't work out. I said it last week concerning singles. I'll say it again concerning divorcees. If you are divorced, you are not a second-class citizen in the church. If you are united to Christ, you are a new creation. Now, if you are actively walking in sin regarding a divorce that you're contemplating, a divorce that you're going through, some sin that you're committing against somebody else, the call is to turn and repent. The call is to walk away from, from sinful and unlawful divorces. And if you think you might need to pursue reconciliation for a sin that you've committed against your spouse, against your ex, talk with an elder, get counsel from God's word, but the Lord has no temporary foster children in his family. They are all completely adopted. He doesn't say that I take the married and the singles, but the divorcees, you're over here in a different standing. He says if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. End of story. Secondly, the answer for our sin, whether our sin is an unlawful divorce, whether it's immorality, whether it's some other thing, the final answer for our sin is not a good marriage. The answer for our sin is our Savior. The final answer for sin is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came to pursue a wayward bride. And the scriptures speak of all of us. It tells us that when we are still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we least deserved it, while we were still walking as enemies of the righteousness of Christ, Jesus died a sinner's death on the cross of Calvary. I don't know everybody's story in here, but if you came in today with a sinful past that followed you here, if you came in contemplating a sinful future through an unlawful divorce or plans to do something that the Lord says you ought not to, if that's you, I urge you this morning to trust in Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe in the Savior. Do not keep rationalizing that you think you know what is best for you. Turn to the one who died for sinners and rose again to give us hope in him. The call for you is to turn and to believe and to find forgiveness in Christ. Finally, most of you are plugging along in Christian marriages. And that's wonderful. 
And I know many of your marriages. I've spoken to you about your marriages. I know that there are many joys in your marriages. I know that there are many hardships. Some of you in your Christian marriages are finding that they're more difficult than you expected they would be. And the word for you is that there is hope in Christ. Divorce is not inevitable for the believer, but sanctification is. Sanctification is inevitable for you and for your spouse. If the Lord is drawing you with him and he's working in you by his Holy Spirit, he will conform you to the image of Christ. Even if the struggles in your marriage are not known to anybody else but the two of you, the Lord sees them and the Lord knows. He knows every argument. He knows every, uh, every confrontation that you have. He sees every push and temptation into selfishness. He knows the ways that you bump up against one another. The Lord knows the struggles that you have in your marriage because he's the one who's joined you together, says Jesus. And that means that there's hope for Christian marriages. It's true that they won't be what they were meant to be before the fall. It's true that our sanctification and therefore our marriages will never be complete and perfect in this life. But the word is that by God's grace, he can make you a blessing to one another. He can give you hope in what he's going to do through you. And so that means press on, dear Christian. Press on with the strength of the Lord in your marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord and God, we pray that you would meet us by your Holy Spirit and help us to trust in you. Cause us, O oh Lord, to walk with you. Cause us to walk in love toward one another, especially those who are married. Give us the strength that we need to forgive daily and regularly, to, uh, to confess our sins to one another and to find our strength in you. For all those who deal with this issue in, in varying degrees and in personal levels, help us, Father, to find your wisdom perhaps counsel from your people, and a word of grace from our Savior. Help us, Lord, uh, to love you and to follow you, we pray in Jesus' name.